Since we have so many babies in the audience, I figured I'd bring up an interpreter for all of the babies. Um, the word of the Lord this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, and then chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. The word of the Lord reads this way. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting his, up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Amy. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Though the angels were quite terrifying, as Pastor Russ stated last week. Even these lowly shepherds would have known the history of their people and the history of their God. The God who had spoken to them, who had directly spoken to the great heroes of their people. The news of a deliverer, a savior, would not have been totally foreign even to these lowly shepherds. In all likelihood, they knew the stories of the great patriarch Abraham, the great deliverer Moses, the great warrior Joshua, and the great king, King David. God had raised up saviors to deliver his people from their enemies before, and now, after 400 years of silence, it seemed that he was doing it again. But the, declar the declaration from the angels had one very important distinction from all the other times that God has spoken, all the other times that God had raised up a deliverer. This time it was different. This time the deliverer was none other than God himself, Christ the Lord. He, Christ, was there when God cut covenant with the great patriarch. This Savior, capital S, would deliver his people from slavery unlike Moses ever could. And he would lead his people in great victory over their enemies forever. And finally, unlike Joshua could, and of his kingdom, of this king's kingdom, there would be no end. His kingdom would last forever and ever. All these great men, all these great deliverers that God had raised up before were simply a foreshadowing of the great covenant maker, the slave deliverer, the warrior king to come. And now he was here. A savior, Christ the Lord. We're going to talk about the divinity of Christ this morning. 
Pastor Rusty showed us last week that God had been silent for 400 years, but now he speaks. But in what way does he speak to his people? In the Old Testament, God's word came in many different ways. In the Old Testament, we see visions and dreams and riddles and clear self-disclosures granted to the patriarchs and to Moses and the prophets who followed. And now we see these many ways of God speaking here coming together, contrasted with one final and definitive word. The word is God's Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going I'm to take us back to our, our, our uh, series in Hebrews, okay? We're going to go back to chapter 1 and let that help us a little bit as we walk through Christ's divinity. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The Old Testament revelation came over a millennium or more. The New Testament revelation came in one installment complete in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. God has spoken to us through His Son. The people had longed to know God, to see God, to understand God. God had given them His law. He had shown them in the way that they should walk, but they still desired more. In Exodus 33, we see this conversation that Moses has with God. Moses desires to see the glory of God, but God tells him graciously that if he were to look on his glory, he would die. For no mortal man can stand in the face of a holy God. In verses 18 to 23 of Exodus 33, Moses says this, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness, this is God speaking to Moses, pass before you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you there until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. This is where we sing the hymn, He covers me there in the cleft of the rock. God says, you can take a peek at my back, but you cannot see my face, Moses. Moses wants to see God's glory, but he cannot because God's glory will consume him. Even the great, great man that Moses was, the meekest man to ever live, God's great deliverer cannot stand in the face of a holy God. Because of mankind's sin, no one can stand before the glory of Almighty God and live. His holiness consumes sin. And this is mankind's great problem. We state it often. We cannot live without God because we were created to be with Him, to worship Him, and to enjoy Him forever. We cannot live without Him, but we we cannot 
stand to be in his presence. Cannot live without him, but we cannot live with him because of our sin. This is the problem here in this exchange with God and Moses. God says, you can't look at me, Moses. So here's what God says. I will proclaim before you my name. And this seems much less exciting than being able to look at the face of Almighty God. I would be like, okay, you're going to tell me? I'd rather see your face. That's what I asked for, God, to see your face. But God says, I will proclaim to you my name. And that might seem less exciting. But in these ancient cultures, names had much more significance than they do now. In someone's name, you could know a lot about them, even their whole history. Who they were could be understood in their name. So in Exodus 34, 5 through 8, you can go read it on your own time. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood before Moses and proclaimed to him the name of the Lord. It says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin, but whom will in no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And Moses in response to the glory of Almighty God, quickly bows his head, it says in verse 8, towards the earth and worshiped. This was his natural response, and it should be our response in the face of Almighty God. God has spoken to us by his Son. Moses asked to see God's glory, and God declared to him his name, and that alone caused Moses to bow his head to the earth and worship. And if you look at John chapter 1, verse 14, we get both. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. God declared to Moses His name. He spoke it to him because Moses could not look upon God's glory. And in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, we get the Word spoken to us in human flesh. And it says, we have seen His glory. We have looked upon it. And He is full of grace and full of truth. And this is good news. This is why we say Merry Christmas. Everything that God has to say to us about his person is said to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is God's appointed messenger. Let me be clear as we unpack the rest of this that when we say that Jesus is the Son of God or the messenger of God or the representative of God, the second member of the Trinity, when the, when the author of Hebrews says he has spoken to us by his Son, it does not mean that Jesus was created later or that Jesus is lesser than God the Father. Luke 
and the author of Hebrews would agree with um, jolly old Saint Nicholas and his passion as he defended the deity of Christ in the face of the heretic. You know that story? Saint Nicholas got so angry at the heretic, um, Arius was it? that uh, he walked across because Arius was denying the deity of Jesus Christ. And St. Nick got so angry, he walked across and slapped him across the face, <laughs> to which he got thrown into jail. Um, and then a big, crazy story followed. Um, but the author of Hebrews and, uh, and Luke, who uh, has authored the book that we're walking through in our series here, would have agreed with St. Nick's passion. They might not have agreed with the slap, I kind of agree with it, but they would have definitely agreed with the passion for which he defended the deity of Jesus Christ. It was interesting in our culture today, I think that one of the things that we see being attacked is the deity of Christ. I think we see this in that people will cherry pick and pull out the pieces of Jesus that they prefer and then uh, just forget about the other pieces, which I believe is a, is a denial of the whole person of who Jesus is, is the denial of the deity of Christ. I, I like the Savior Jesus. I like the gentle Jesus. I like the caring for others Jesus, but don't give me the wrathful Jesus who knocks over the tables or it says that I am the only way to the Father. Don't give me that one. I mean, and, and, and the, the reverse could be true as well. You can't say, I just like the wrathful one, but I don't like the other one. No. Christ Jesus must be accepted wholly. And to pick one or the other, I believe, is to be in the same vein, as it were, of those who would deny the deity of Jesus Christ for who he is as a whole. Let's talk about the deity of Christ. Let's talk about who this is. We, we see depictions of this lowly baby in a manger. You see it when you drive through small towns. You see it in the front of houses. You see it on Christmas cards. And there's a whole plethora of depictions of the baby Jesus in a manger. And oftentimes it's very easy for us to have a disconnect between the lowly baby in the manger and the God of heaven and earth. Talk to you a minute about Christ cosmic supremacy. And I'm going to use Hebrews 1 uh, to help us un understand this. Christ cosmic supremacy. If you look at Hebrews 1, verses 2b through 3, he says this Whom he appointed the heir of all things, he's talking about Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, through whom he created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This little baby, lowly, vulnerable in the manger, is none other than the God who rules the universe. Christ is the inheritor, whom he appointed the heir of all things. John 3.35, Jesus says this, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And we see here that the Son is emphasized as the inheritor because sons are natural heirs. This is much more um, of an emphasis in the ancient world. 
the eldest son would, would inherit all things. Throughout the Old Testament, you see stories of sons receiving their inheritance, in particular the firstborn son. So we see this theme of sonship and heirship throughout. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. Speaking of Jesus in Psalms 2.8, it says, Ask me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possessions. Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the Lord's anointed. Christ is the heir of planet earth. Stick with me here. It's peoples, the universe, and the world to come. This is what he inherits. He is the heir because he is the creator of it and the redeemer of it. As the creator of the universe, he is its natural heir. Colossians 1.16, all things were created for him or all things were created towards him, you could say. Everything in the physical universe is for Christ and to Christ and will consummate in Christ as the heir of the new creation. He will inherit these things. In addition to this natural inheritance as creator, he is also the redeemer of these things. And as the redeemer, he has also earned a vast inheritance of souls who will be renewed through his atoning work upon the cross. This means that all the redeemed, those who have been and are being and will be saved, are his inheritance. So this means that if you have been redeemed, you are Christ's inheritance. You belong to him. In John 6, 37-39, Jesus says, All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast him out. For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you are in Christ, you are his inheritance. Because he is the creator and the redeemer of all things. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays the church would understand the riches of its inheritance in Christ. The riches of its inheritance in Christ. One commentator says, talking about this idea, the apostle was praying that his readers would understand how highly they are valued in Christ. Jesus is the heir to all the heavens and the numerous worlds, but we, the redeemed, are his treasure. Among all the things that Christ will inherit, we are the thing that he will inherit that gives him most joy. The redeemed are worth more than the universe itself. They have been blessed with all Christ has, end quote. And in addition to being his inheritance, the scripture shows us that the redeemed are also heirs with Christ. In Romans 8, it says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then what? Heirs, heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. We inherit all that he inherits. Christ is the heir of all things, and if we are in him, then we are also the heir of all things.
And as we continue through this, I pray that your response to this glorious news and this glorious God that we serve will be the same as Moses, that we would bow our heads and worship. I pray that that is your response. That is the point of Luke's gospel. Worship. Worship is the point. So Christ is the inheritor. Christ is also the creator. Hebrews 1, verse 2, through whom he created the world. We've already quoted from John 1, but I'll read you a little bit more. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? Was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the one who made the heavens and the earth, and everything in them. He spoke, and it happened. He spoke, and it happened. There's a phrase in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, from the Kaloman army, they would, uh, when responding to their superiors, when their superior would give a command, they would say to them, to hear is to obey. To hear is to obey. I hear your command and I will obey it. This is the way the universe in creation responds to Jesus Christ. The old hymn says this, I, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and, and filled the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. There's not a plant or flower below but makes thy glories known. The clouds arise and the tempests blow by order from thy throne. The Lord Jesus created all things. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is this, he says, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom all things exist. Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And God's people said... Amen. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This baby in this manger in a cave is the king of the universe, the one who created all things. In his best-selling book, a Brief History of Time, Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking says that our galaxy is an average size spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl in a pastry roll, and that it is over 100,000 light years across, about 600 trillion miles. He says, we know that our galaxy is only one of some 100 thousand million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing something like a hundred thousand million stars. It is commonly held that the average distance between these hundred thousand million galaxies is three million light years. And on top of that, because of the work of uh, men like Hubble, who with the Hubble telescope, we know that the universe is consistently expanding. It's continually expanding. Some estimates say that the most distant galaxy is 8 
billion light years away and racing away at two million miles per hour. And all of this, Christ created and sustains without breaking a sweat. How well did you manage your uh, schedule this week? All the Christmas shopping? Putting up the tree? Or not putting up the tree? Or, oh crap, we got to get a tree? You're nudging your husband? All of this Christ created in a word. And it obeyed to hear is to obey. And he sustains it now. Christ the sustainer. He upholds the universe, it says in Hebrews, by the word of his power. Jesus sustains and governs the universe that he created. He did not throw it into existence and say, good luck. No, he knows the stars by name and he charts their course. He holds it in being by the word of his power. He is before all things, Colossians reminds us. And in him, all things what? They hold together. Your life might seem like it is being ripped apart. So have faith and trust in the one who holds all things together. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The universe is held together and on its course by the will of Jesus Christ. All the actions of men and the angels are held by Christ. Without Jesus willing it, all the material world and all the spiritual world would cease to exist. If he did not sustain it, it would cease to exist in an instant. Jesus sustains the natural world and governs all of nature. In Matthew, Jesus speaking in, in uh, Matthew 10, 29 says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father's will. The smallest bird, the smallest sparrow does not die outside of the sovereign plan of God, outside of his rule. He commands the universe and all that is in it. If you look at the scriptures, you see big fish. They obey instantly and they swallow up the disobedient prophet who is running from God. The sun stands still in the sky. Lions shut their hungry mouths and fire does not consume when their Lord commands. Remember in Luke 8:25 when Jesus calms the storm by a word, peace, be still. The disciples say this, who then is this that he commands and even the winds and water obey him? The winds and the waves obey the will of their Lord and they still obey his will. There's this, uh, be still my soul, this hymn, and it says, be still my soul. Our, our hearts can be still. Be still my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he was here below. The answer to the disciples' question, this is what we teach our boys when we read this story, what's the answer to the question, who is this? And they emphatically say, God, Jesus is God, the creator of the universe. And brothers and sisters, this is often lost on us. 
It becomes secondhand to us. It does not conjure in our hearts or foster in our hearts the response of Moses of worship. And it should. And if it doesn't, something is wrong. Something is wrong. You've grown cold or unthankful, bitter, or focused on this world. If the fact, the truth, that this babe in a manger is the creator of the universe now come to save and set free his people doesn't conjure in your heart worship, then something is wrong. You've lost your sense of awe. Jesus is not some good teacher, as people would have you believe. The difference in Christianity and other religions is that unlike Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, and others, Jesus of Nazareth is the son of the living God. And that should stir your hearts. That's that's what got Jesus in trouble, right? Everybody liked him when he was going around doing good things for people, teaching good parables and good lessons. But when Jesus began to speak of himself being the only way to the Father, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, they were, they, they were ready to crucify him, and they did. And the same is true for us, right? What pieces of Jesus do you most prefer? And at what parts in your life do you prefer them? Right? Come, all ye unfaithful. Yes, praise God. We just sang that, right? But oftentimes we can allow that to be an excuse for our behavior. Well, he, he welcomes the unfaithful. Well, he does, but he also gives strength that you may walk in newness of life. So you can sing, come all ye faithful, right? You who are in Christ are the faithful, and you should walk in faithfulness. This also means if, if Jesus is the creator and, and the sustainer, this also means that Jesus has the authority over all governance and all affairs of history. In Revelation 17, 14, it tells us that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. No one takes power without the King of kings willing it to happen. Got a lot of political anxiety in our culture today. But you should be encouraged and strengthened to know that Jesus has authority over all the governance and affairs of history. That no one takes power except that he wills it. Monarchs, presidents, chiefs, sheiks, prime ministers, dictators, governors, mayors, senators, congressmen, city council can't be elected into office or take control except that King Jesus allows it. And we do our part, and you should do your part. This can't be an excuse to not go out and do your part and to vote in accordance with the scriptures, not your conscience, the scriptures, okay? So you use the excuse of voting your conscience, you you can excuse that all day long. Your conscience should be in subjection to the scriptures. There is a wrong and right way to vote. But at the end of the day, we can know that we cast our vote and we are one among thousands and thousands but have peace that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is the one who appoints, right? So we do our job, we work hard, we work diligently, and we lay our head on our pillow at night and sleep with peace because we know that the Lord is the one who governs the affairs of man. 
Daniel talks about this, and Daniel says in, in the book of Daniel, he removes kings and he sets up kings like it's nothing. He raises up kings and he casts them down. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to it who he will. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can say to his hand or to him, what have you done? God governs what these rulers do. Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Even evil leaders are not appointed apart from God's sovereign plan, apart from the creator who sustains and who governs. I could say a lot more about this. I'll save some of this for cold pizza tomorrow, but know this. Everything that comes against the mission of the church and the will of Jesus Christ will fail. Everything that comes against the mission of the church and the will of Jesus Christ will fail. So therefore, you can go out in boldness and fearlessness with great joy, knowing that the mission of the church will be accomplished, that the will of Christ will be accomplished regardless of what anybody says. Christ is the the radiator, not like that radiator, but he radiates, okay? He radiates the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The word radiance, it's it's a good translation here versus others because it it talks about the reflection that Jesus is of God. Um, The the, the difference is, is pretty significant. The function of the sun and the moon in our solar system are kind of helpful analogies here, right? The moon reflects light, but the sun radiates light because it is its source. In the same way, Jesus does not just reflect God's glory, he is a part of God's glory. He's a part of it. He's, He's not just reflecting it, he's a part of God's glory as the second member of the Trinity, as God in the flesh, as the God-man. And we see this all throughout scriptures, like the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember this? When he takes a few of his disciples up, and it says there in that passage in Mark 9, it says, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, um, as no one on earth could have bleached them. We see pictures of Jesus on earth showing bits of this glory. It was his own glory. He he did not diminish in his glory or his godhood as he came to earth. He did not put that on hold. No, he possessed those things. He just put on human flesh as well. Incarnation, in many ways, is, is is a hard thing for us to grasp and a mystery, and so therefore believed by faith. It was his glory, but also the glory of the Father. The same glory from God the son that blinded Paul on the road to Damascus, that that same glory he possessed. Christ is the the radiator. Christ is the representative, the exact imprint of his nature, it says. Christ is the representative. Spurgeon says this, you only have to read the Gospels and to look with willing eyes and you should behold in Christ all that can be possibly seen of God. It is veiled in human flesh, as it must be. But the glory of God is not to be seen by us absolutely. It is toned down for those dim eyes of ours. But the Godhead is there, the perfect Godhead in union with the perfect manhood of Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. In Colossians it says he is the 
image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The phrase, the exact imprint, it's giving this idea of an image on a coin that is perfectly correspondent with the image on the die, right? They press the, the, the coin with a die. This is the idea, the exact imprint. Jesus is completely the same in his being as the Father. But there's an important distinction that they both exist separately, just like the die and the image exist separately. All right, some of you are frowning at me this morning, and I can say you're in good company because we've entered into the conversation about the Trinity, and Augustine said, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. If you try to explain it, you'll lose your mind. So we'll leave that for another time. Ask Rusty about that because he's smarter than me. The point here is this. Jesus Christ is the superior revelation of God, okay? Because he is the exact imprint of God the Father. We see Jesus, and we know exactly who the God of the universe is like. What is God like? Look to Jesus. What does God require of me? Look to Jesus. Right? How should I live? Look to Jesus. God has spoken to us through his Son. And through Jesus, we know what God thinks how God acts, how he talks, how he relates to mankind, and what he requires of us. This is Christ the Lord. Look at this baby, and you will see God. In Colossians 1, 15 through 20, I like the way the Phillips paraphrase says it here. Listen. Now Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. He existed before creation began, for it was Through him that everything was made, whether spiritual or material, seen or unseen. Through him and for him also were all, were created power and dominion, ownership and authority. In fact, every single thing that was created was created through him and for him. He is both the first principle and the upholding principle of the whole scheme of creation. And now he is the head of the body which is comprised of all Christian people. This is such a good part right here. Life from nothing began through him, and life from the dead began through him. Isn't that good? Life from nothing began from him, and life from the dead began through him, and he is therefore justly justly called Lord of all because of these things. Let's talk about the earthly supremacy of Jesus, because Jesus comes down and does not lose any of his deity, does not lose any of his glory. He simply puts on human flesh so that our dim eyes, like Spurgeon says, can gaze upon it. The earthly supremacy of Jesus Christ. The reason the incarnation is so important is because Jesus had to come to fix the human problem, which was sin, and to fulfill the human desire, which is worship. And the only one that could do this is the God-man. The only one that could do this is Jesus, the divine. He, he, is, he shows us his supremacy in his life, in his life, in the way in which he lived. He did what Adam could not do. He did what Adam could not do, and only the God-man could do this. He was tempted in every way like us, yet he remained faithful and overcame every single temptation. When Jesus was being tempted in Luke 4, 
Oftentimes we read that passage and we think Satan was bluffing. Satan really couldn't give him the kingdoms of the earth. No, that's, that's not true. Satan could give him those things. That was a real temptation for Christ, right? Because Satan ruled under God's authority, but ruled those kingdoms. And he could have given them to him. And the temptation was this. Christ's job was to come to earth and do what Adam could not do, right? To, to live the perfect life and to, to, um, to break in and destroy the strong man and plunder his goods. To exercise dominion. That's what Jesus came to do. And the temptation here for Jesus was to be able to inherit all those things without having to go to the cross. Without having to obey the will of the Father. So it was a real temptation for him. And yet... He, unlike us, unlike the first Adam, stood strong and overcame. Satan had no ultimate authority over him because he was the God-man. And even though it was a temptation that he faced, he was faithful and he inherited and received all things. Only the God-man could do this. He is supreme then in his death. Supreme in his death. His perfect life was the reason he was perfect in death. The perfect sacrifice. The only way he could go to the cross and pay for the sins of the world was because he lived the perfect life. He is supreme in his death because he was supreme in his life. Only the God-man could do this. Not some lesser being, but God himself encased in human flesh. It's the only sacrifice that could satisfy the righteous requirements of a holy God. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said this, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus says that he has come to do the Father's will. And this is important. This is, as we went through Hebrews, we saw the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, right? The difference in the sacrifice of Jesus and the sacrifice of those beasts is that a beast could never say it was his will to do this. A beast never went willingly. They went kicking and screaming. Jesus goes willingly. It's important. It's important because every single human being, unlike Jesus, we do not pray, not my will, Father, but yours be done. No, our proclivity is to always pray, not your will, mine be done. That's what we do. And yet Christ says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Yours be done. Alistair Begg comments on this, and he says, the ultimate citadel of sin is the consenting will of a man or woman. Where sin reigns, it is in our will. We are not lost just helplessly, but we are also lost willfully. Lost willfully. Right? People get all, all, all up in knots about uh, being able to choose the Lord. Like, do I, I do have a choice. Like, okay, you do have a choice, and you will always choose yourself. You will always choose yourself over God. No one has sought God. No one has done good. No one has done righteousness, the author of Psalms says. We are lost willfully. That goes on to say, therefore, those of us who are willfully sinners need to be redeemed by someone who brings their will and offers it up in sacrifice. So in the Lord Jesus, for the first time and for the only time and perfectly, the truth of substitution is established. Jesus willfully, 
offers himself. He's the, remember through Hebrews, he is the substance of that Old Testament shadow sacrifice that was unwilling, but he is willing. Jesus is the willful substance of the sacrificed. He is also the heavenly priest who performs the sacrifice once and for all. God's sovereign will, and I won't get into this because that's next week's, God's sovereign will overcame our willful disobedience by the willful obedience of Jesus Christ. And now we are able, if we are in Christ, to willfully obey the Lord. Only the God-man could do this. The supreme life of Christ, the supreme death of Christ, led to his supreme resurrection, the supremacy of Christ's resurrection. Nobody had ever done this before. No one's ever come back from the dead like this. It reminds me of the, uh, the saying from Narnia when Aslan comes back, when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in the traitor's stead, then the stone table will crack and death itself will turn backwards. Death had no wages that Christ could not pay. And unlike the first Adam, the second Adam had committed no treachery. Therefore, death had no hold on him. Only the God-man could do this. Life from nothing began through him, and life from the dead begins through him. And he is therefore justly called Lord of all because he is God. This is our last point. So in response to the God-man, in response to the deity of Christ, as we gaze upon this baby in a manger, as we hear the, the news from the angels proclaimed, there is a Savior, great God sent saviors before, but here's the difference. This savior is Christ the Lord. It should conjure in us a spirit of worship. It should foster in us a spirit of worship. The only fitting response to this must be worship. In Luke 20, excuse me, Luke 2, verse 20, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. Is that your response when you hear the word of God preached? Is that your response when you ponder the mysteries of the incarnation? Is that your response when you read your Bible? Do you return from those times glorifying and praising God for what he has revealed to you? Or is it just another meh, just another thing? Listen, if it doesn't cause you to respond and worship, friend, then something's wrong. In Luke 24, see, I, I, you knew we'd get to it. I had been read it. We'll get to it, right? It says at the end of uh, Luke that he read earlier, they worshipped him, speaking of the disciples, after he uh, descended. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were constantly in the temple blessing God. The beginning of Luke and the end of Luke is about worship. The, 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 the uh, revelation of Christ the Lord causes the shepherds and all who encounter him to worship all through Luke's gospel. Those who encounter him either worship him or reject him. There is no other. There are two types of people, either those who bow the knee or those who do not bow the knee. That's it. There's no third person. As much as you might try to squeeze it in there, there's no third one. It's those. You either stumble over Christ or you embrace him. That's it. And all of Luke's gospel is those encountering Christ, and the only proper response is worship. And we see that in the beginning, and we also see that in the end. This is the only fitting response. It's joyful worship. The proper response to God is joy and fearlessness in worship. When Moses is confronted with the glory of God, what does he do? He worships. 
When the shepherds are confronted with the glory of God, they worship. When the disciples are confronted with the glory of God, they worship. Appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Consider the mercies of God. The only proper response is one of worship. The only fitting response of the Savior who is Christ the Lord is overflowing joy and a life of sacrificial worship. What is your response? Then the question has to be asked to Christ the Lord. Do you really like the Savior part, but not the Christ the Lord part? To pick one over the other, again, I think it's, it's in the same vein as denying the deity of Christ. If you look at the scriptures, you look at the beginning, you look at the middle, you look at the end of the book of Luke, you see that true worship takes action. Let me, let me read you here, uh, Luke 2, 15 through 16. Uh, when the angels went away from them, so they showed up to them, declared, Savior, Christ the Lord is here. Give them some instructions on what to do. Here's where you'll find him. The angel went away from them into heaven. And the shepherds said one to another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They didn't sit back and say, Oh, that was weird. Or, oh, that was really cool. Awesome. No, they, they took action. They went and found him. Why? Because the Lord had made known to them in the person of Jesus Christ, Christ the Lord, the Savior. And they went with haste and urgency, and they found him, found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. The worship of the shepherds took action. The, the worship of those in the end took action. They obeyed the voice of the Lord who said, go back and wait for the Holy Spirit. And they went back and they worshiped and rejoiced in the temple. And then they went out and proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. When the angels went away from them, they didn't say, wow, that was cool. Let's go back to our business. No, they left the sheep and they went with haste to see what had been told them. There's this, there's this principle of seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. True worship is seen in the action of holy living. Listen, you can't just desire holiness. You have to pursue it. Okay? You can't just say, yeah, I, I desire worshipness and a worshipful uh, spirit before the Lord, or I desire salvation, and that's good enough. Like, just gazing upon the Christ child doesn't do anything for you. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people, yet millions of people around the world who will sing songs about a Christ child that they know nothing about and will set up manger scenes and send cards with a manger on the front and know nothing of the peace and joy that it brings. Because it's an idea to them. They ponder it. They think about it. It's a nice feeling. Now you must do something with Christ. Regardless of what you do, he is still king of the universe. His mission will still be accomplished. So bow the knee. They took haste to see. They found true worship is seen in obedience to God's promises. They obeyed. They went and they saw. When we sing songs, when we sing songs on Sunday morning full of rich theology and truth, our hearts are worshiping. We are banking everything, not on a great melody that makes us feel better. That's just a perk. But we are, our hearts are encouraged because we are banking everything upon the promise of God. 
physical ailments, financial struggles, uh, pressure from pagans, whatever it is, the craziness in the world in which we live, sorrows, suffering, hardship. Our hearts are encouraged as we sing the promise and bank everything on it, and then we leave this place and go do it. And go do it. Not like a spiritual drug addict who has to come back every week and get their high so they can kind of get that to get them to the next week, which is the majority of churches out there today in Big Eva. Big, happy experience to make you feel better about the crap that you've done this week so you can kind of just float by instead of bringing in and saying, this is the word of God, hear it, heed it, go and do it, all right? Our hearts are encouraged, it fosters this fearlessness within us regardless of what I'm facing. I don't know why my wife's having seizures and the doctors don't know either, right? What do we pay these people for, right? Like, I could have just Googled that, right? Like half the stuff I, these people tell me, I just could have Googled that, man. Or like, where did, you got a degree for this? Um, and I don't know, we're still trying to figure it out. And the only thing that gives me hope is to know that, that God understands and knows and governs the affairs of mankind, and he knows and cares about my wife's body, he understands why it's happening, like physiologically understands why it's happening when I don't, and even the doctors can't figure it out quite yet, because he made her brain, he made her body, and even more so, he has a purpose in it, and a plan in it, and we don't really know exactly what that is. I can't tell you how many times as I wake up at night, like, God, if you would just show me what you're trying to do here, then I could do it, then we could get through this trial, right? That's not the way it works. But I do know this, he is conforming us through this hardship to the image of his son. That's what he's doing. At the end of the day, all I can say is, he's making me more like Jesus and less like Jeff. And that's a good thing. And one day, I'll know, I'll know exactly why we're walking through these hardships. And on that day, I won't say, yeah, okay, I see how that works. On that one day, I will say, in the presence of my Savior, the King of the universe, that I could have written a better story. That's the best possible thing that could have happened to us because it was preserving us, it was sanctifying us, and we see that you are ruling and reigning over all things. This truth is what makes you fearless, right? The first thing that the doctors said to us when we went in was, we will give you medication for peace of mind. And I'm not demonizing medication, and I'm not saying it was a bad thing, but right away, their main emphasis was peace of mind, peace of mind, peace of mind. And Brent and I were commenting on that later and saying, of course we've had fear. Of course we've had heartache. Of course we've been anxious. Ask my wife. I'm like, every other minute, I'm like, you're still with us? Right in the house, like randomly, and she's like, yeah, I'm here. I'm not seizing. You know what my, my wife does? Like when I've been out of the house, I'll send a text, you good? And you know that Kermit the Frog gift that like people like this she just sends that to me <laughs> I'm like that doesn't help <laughs> that's not funny <laughs> right it is pretty funny it is pretty funny um, and at the end of the day it's helpful because even in the face of great trial and hardship we can laugh right and we can have joy boundless joy because we know who knows the end from the beginning and does all things well, right? So this creates in us not an urgency to, to have peace of mind, but to know that the Lord is doing something and he is faithful. And if we walk in patience and 
repentance and faith, we'll be okay. Why? Because he is the supreme ruler of the universe. Because he rose from the dead, and if Jesus rose from the dead, it's going to be okay. This fosters in our hearts a fearlessness, a fearless worship. What can man do to me? What, what, what can pagans do to me? What can sickness do to me? What can even death do to me, no matter what I face? What do we sing? I know that my Redeemer lives. And we preach that to ourselves. I know my Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer lives. And what does that cause us to say? Glory, hallelujah. And because my Redeemer lives, and because I can say glory, hallelujah, then I fight on. I pray on. I'm gaining ground. Glory, Hallelujah. God has spoken to us through his Son, the Word incarnate. He has spoken to us through his Word and the Scriptures. We can know his heart and his will through his Son and through his Word. They preached the good news of the Savior, the shepherds did. They preached the good news of the Savior, who was Christ the Lord. He had come. It was the only fitting response for them. This worship came out of their mouths. They went and preached it. The disciples preached it. But Pastor Rusty pointed out last week that these, uh, it's interesting that the angels appear to these shepherds. You know, these shepherds had no, um, no rights in community. They were pretty much the lowest of the low. Like this is like the French Foreign Legion or whatever. This is where you would go if you were a criminal or if you were kind of low society. So you've got to imagine that they met a lot of resistance, I would imagine, in their proclamation of the gospel. Shepherds? Telling us this, kind of like the woman at the well, like, you're not the best source for this kind of stuff. And yet they banked everything on the message rather than the circumstances. And with fear of their God, it gave them a fearlessness to proclaim the message that was given to them. Do you boldly proclaim the salvation is found in no other but Jesus Christ? Listen, Christians should be the most fearless, most joyful people on the planet. Why is that not the case often? We'll talk about that in cold pizza some more. But but Christians should be the most fearless, joyful people on the planet here. Why? Because God is with us. Emmanuel, Christ the Lord, has come. God is with us. So there's no such thing as a fearful Christian. C.S. Lewis said, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. It's not wrong to feel fear, but it is sin to be ruled by fear. It is sinful to be worried, to be ruled by anxiety. True courage is not the absence of fear, but the strength to overcome that fear. Or as St. John Wayne said it, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Right? That's what true courage is. We are not of those who shrink back. We are not a people to be pitied. The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are what? As bold as a lion. Why? Because our God is with us. God has come. Because God is with us, there is no such thing as a joyless Christian. Spurgeon said, He is great and glorious whatever we may be, and it is for our joy, our safety, our everlasting happiness that we should become his servants. 
It is necessary for the right ordering of our lives that our hearts may be in tune to yield the music of joy. The music of joy. It is, it is right. It is necessary that our hearts be in tune with his truth, that our hearts would yield the music of joy to his name. No more let sin and sorrow um, uh, grow or thorns infest the ground, story of the world says. He comes to make his blessings flow for as the curse is found. So that is true of you, then your worship will look fearless. Your proclamation of this message will look fearless and it will look joyful. You will be a jolly brawler. You will be a jolly warrior as you go forth declaring Jesus is the only name that calms my fears, that bids my sorrows cease. It's music in this sinner's ears. It's life, it's health, it's peace. Christians should be fearless and overflowing with joy. Listen, please do not use as an excuse your personality for this stuff. Well, I'm just a worrier. You might just be fearfully sinful, right? Don't use your personality, well, I'm just an Eeyore, right? I'm just, I'm just a Debbie Downer. Sorry, Debbie. That's not an excuse, no. Regardless of your personality, you should overflow with joy and fearlessness in the face of whatever comes your way. Why? Because the, the light has come and the darkness has not, will not overtake it. Because Jesus, the Savior, Christ the Lord, has come. Let me give you a, a couple scriptures and a quote from Spurgeon and we'll be done. And, and this is where joy really comes from. This Spurgeon quote's really helpful. This is, where, this is what your joy is rooted in. Spurgeon says this, No joy ever visits my soul like that of knowing that Jesus is highly exalted and that to him every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of the Father. That's where your joy has to be rooted. Simeon declares in Luke 1, before we even see the birth of Jesus, blessed be the God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He has spoken by his mouth and his holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show us the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant to us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. This is why he has come, that we might serve him, deliver us from our enemies, that we might serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. All of our days. So this Christmas season, may our worship look joyful, raucously joyful, like be, be overflowing in your giving and in your singing. Be jolly and merry. Don't be a Grinch, okay? There's no time for that. Be jolly. Rejoice because our King has come. Be fearless in your proclamation of the gospel. What can man do to me? What can death even do to me? This baby who has been born to us is Christ the Lord, the ruler of the cosmos. He sits enthroned upon the axis of the earth, ruling and reigning and dictating the affairs of man. And he knows my name, and I am his. And he is mine. So let this be your theme 
for Christmas. Psalms 1, 49, verse 6. Let, six Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands. All right? Every Christmas party, the high praises of your God be in your throat and a two-edged sword in your hands because you are joyful and you are fearless because Christ the Lord has come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, and I said a lot of words, but I know that the Holy Spirit is the true preacher and he will take the word that needs to go down into the depths of our heart. Uh, I pray that uh, it would find good ground. We know that there are... Um, Lots of things that distract us from allowing the word of God to take root in our hearts. Satan desires to snatch it. So, Holy Spirit, would you please take your word and plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in all that we do for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.